The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Jesus said to the Jewish crowds, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. The Jews quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I have life because of the Father, so also the one who feeds on me will have life because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Unlike your ancestors who ate and still died, whoever eats this bread will live forever. The Gospel of the Lord. Today we celebrate the solemnity of the most holy body and blood of Christ, also known as Corpus Christi. If we take a moment and we put ourselves in the place of the Jewish crowds today, we're, we're listening to Jesus. This has been going on. He's been giving this bread of life discourse, and all of a sudden he, he comes up and he says this, this section. He says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever, and the bread I will give in my, is my flesh for the life of the world. We might hear that first part and say, wow, that sounds really great. I'm going to live forever if I eat this bread. I'll be immortal. Ha <laughs> ha. Godlike. Maybe that's what they're thinking. Maybe not. But then it goes on. They, they begin to quarrel because they said, how can this man give his flesh to eat? That sounds weird. And so for ourselves, maybe we hear this and we think, that's really strange. I'm not a cannibal. I don't eat people's flesh. I don't do that thing. That's, that's weird. Maybe we sit there and think, no, because this is God, and God wants me to consume him, and because if I consume, I, I have life with him. Like, I want the life. I'll do it. Sure, no problem. And maybe some of us think, I don't get it. We could fall into any of those categories. But what the Lord does not back down from is the fact that he says, whoever eats this bread will live forever. Whoever eats my flesh will have eternal life. He does not back down from this. Now let's take a quick moment. We're going to just pause that. I'm going to change direction real fast. And just ponder this idea as well. Can you think of a church where every single person in the church is a happy person who's totally satisfied with what goes on in their church. Your silence tells me no. Because if you didn't know this, last time I checked this, this was a a few months ago, Wabash alone has 21 churches in it, 21 Christian churches, one Catholic church, 20 other churches, which leads me to believe that there is not a church where every single person is happy and fully satisfied. 
I posed this question to some friends and, and their response was, it's impossible. And I responded back, I don't think it is impossible. I think our perception is wrong. Now, a church where every single person's happy, where every single person is satisfied, I guarantee you a few things. A church where everyone's happy, where everyone's satisfied, believe it or not, will not have the best music. Because everyone has an opinion about music. I like that hymn. I don't like that hymn. That's too loud. That's too soft. I can't hear this person. I don't know what they're saying. You're in Latin. You're in other words. I don't know. Everyone's got an opinion about the music. So that's not going to be the answer to what makes a church where everyone's happy and fully satisfied. A church where everyone's happy and fully satisfied, I guarantee, will not have the best preaching. Because everyone has an opinion about preaching. I know, because I'm told of this often. Father, you're too long, you're too short. You didn't say this thing, you didn't say that thing. Okay. I guarantee that a church where everyone's happy and fully satisfied will not be the prettiest church. It won't have the greatest layout. I guarantee it will not always have the best temperature in it. I guarantee it will not have a set prescribed time of we start here and we end here. Nowhere will the church that has the happiest, most satisfied people, where everyone is happy and satisfied, will it meet anything on a material level. So why is this not impossible? Because a church where everyone is satisfied, where every single person is happy, will be focused on one reality, one absolute truth. And that reality and truth is Jesus Christ. Where we come not for the music, not for the preaching, not for the quickness, not for anything else, except to be in his presence and hopefully to receive him in the Eucharist. That, brothers and sisters, is the church where everyone will be happy and fully satisfied. And I can't tell you I'm going to find it on this side of heaven. But in heaven, I bet we will. So this church, where everyone is fully satisfied, where everyone is fully happy, because our focus is on him, is what we should be striving for for, for, for heaven now, for, for church now. Now, growing up, I was an extremely shy child. If you can't believe that or not, I was. Super quiet, afraid of confrontation, never outspoken about anything, never loud about anything. But my mom would always say I wore my emotions on my sleeve. I was like a really deep thinker. I thought a lot about things. Things impacted me deeply. And I would say as I've gotten older, I'm still somewhat quiet, though probably less so. I still don't like confrontation. It's not my favorite thing in the world. Uh, I still get emotional, but I'm, I'm much less fearful than I was, and I've actually become somewhat crass, according to my mother. I'm very blunt sometimes. And I've wondered, like, what's the tendency for that? Like, what has changed in me? Is it, is it my age? Is it, is it knowledge on things? Is it my personality? Have I just become, like, some, some jerk? I don't know. And I would say, actually, what's changed was a relationship. A relationship changed me. A time and knowledge in and through a relationship changed me. And that relationship was one with God. So God changed me. God didn't necessarily like fix everything in me, but he took the goodness of me. He 
magnified it. He took the, the weaknesses in me. He healed that. And so for any of us as a Christian who, who claims to have a relationship with God, there should be this change going on with us. There should be something that is constantly evolving and, and becoming different. So when we speak, and we speak with a boldness about our faith, we do so simply. It's, it's actually one of the nice things. We don't have to be very complex or convoluted. We can speak simply about the faith, but it takes an art to do so. It's not a natural thing that just anyone can do at any moment. It's, it, it takes evolution. It also requires trust and courage. Trust that God will aid me in this conversation and encourage to actually do the thing that might be uncomfortable. Because the reality is we've probably all experienced at some time an opportunity to share our faith but have been afraid. Does anyone relate to that a little bit? And, and fear is a tactic of the devil. Maybe, maybe you've heard this voice before. Maybe you've heard this voice that just said, shh, be quiet. Nobody wants to hear that. Maybe you've heard the voice before that says, no, shh, you'll offend someone. Maybe you've heard the voice that, no, shh, you'll just embarrass yourself. The funny thing is this, like, those lies aren't that quiet. They're actually really loud, like, ha you're a fool, you'll be rejected, no one's going to like you, you're going to embarrass yourself. They're so loud, they're so magnifying, and yet the truth is very quiet. You're a son of God, you're a daughter of God. Right, lies are very complicated. Think about this, I remember when I was younger, I think I broke a lamp in the house, and I was really afraid to tell the truth. My parents were like, did you break the lamp? I said, no. I had this elaborate story. That was a cat and like the thing and the ball and like, I don't know what happened. Like lies get really complex really quickly, but truth is very simple. Did you break the lamp? Yeah. So speaking boldly, speaking simply about the faith is, is not simple. It's hard. And yet it's something we're all called to do. And we have to think about who else is, is given these responsibilities of speaking truth simply, speaking truth out of love. And the first people I always think about are doctors. Doctors have to deliver all types of news to people all the time that's maybe not always desirable. Parents, this is the next person I think about. Like, how many times have you had to tell your children something that was a difficult truth to share? Anyone who speaks to anyone else about the faith is speaking objective truth, but fear is going to lead us to then become soft, to, to not speak that truth, to be non-confrontational, to not want to upset that person, to become lazy even. Fear causes us to become um, just, just nothing really. And, and we see this most played out with relativism. Relativism is this, this reality that's pierced our inner part of our being that says, well, anything is true, nothing is absolute, and that's just not accurate. And what I'm discovering, and maybe we discover this, maybe we're discovering this together, is that we are dying from the inside out. We are, we are eroding from the inside out. We are being eaten mentally and physically and spiritually by, by the stuff of the world, and we're dying from a starvation. We're dying from a deprivation. We're dying from an isolation. We're being put into a coma 
and sustained with this artificial reality, this artificial sustenance where we're being fed by, by the screens and we're being fed by, by all these things that don't really fill us up, but they act like we're being satisfied. We're being lulled into a sleep, too tired and too weak to defend ourselves, our families, and our friends. And this sounds, sounds really depressing right now, doesn't it? You're like, Father, give me some hope. I have hope. I have a solution. I have an answer. I have the remedy. I have the medicine. And it's Jesus Christ. It's relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who wants to enter into us, to give us his very body, his very blood, for that we can be consumed, that we can consume him and be consumed by him, wants to transform us from the inside out, wants to heal us from the inside out, wants to feed us so that we're not starving, wants to fill us so we're not deprived, wants us to be in relationship so we're not isolated. He wants us to be awake and alert and attentive. And I've, I've discovered this especially, like, we should all know this as, as human beings, that when we speak, there's a certain power that we speak to, that there's a certain authority we speak from. But as a priest especially, I recognize that when I'm up here, when I'm in this position, like, there's a great authority and responsibility I speak with that is not to be taken lightly. And so I have to think about what am I speaking for? What's the purpose of what I'm saying? Is it to offend people? Is it to provoke people? Is it to inspire? When Jesus speaks in this gospel today, he speaks with immense clarity. He doesn't stumble over words. He's not conforming to some popular or comfortable opinion. He declares with authority truth and does not back down. He does not falter. He does not change. He gives us an absolute truth today that he is willing to to risk everything for. And that's what he does. He risks everything because of this truth. He's unwilling to compromise because the truth is too important to be altered. And the truth is that bread and that wine is my body and blood. That when you receive this, you receive me. It's not a symbol. It's not an idea. It's not a gesture. It is the body and blood of our God, Jesus Christ. The world has stopped believing this. It stopped seeking truth, generally. And people no longer then seek after facts, but feelings. And they're driven by feelings. Well, I don't feel like it's him. I don't care if you don't feel like it's him. None of us should, should just base everything off of a feeling. Guess what? There's probably times that you don't feel like loving someone. There's probably times you don't feel like being nice. There's probably times we don't feel like doing that thing, and yet we know what the good is. We know what the truths are. We, we are so cautious about offending people or, or being concerned about getting canceled. Like, that's the new thing these days. They're just going to cancel me. And yet the answer is right before us. The answer is, is in front of us. God is alive in that tabernacle right now. And in a few moments, he's going to be alive on this altar when we take bread and wine. And it is consecrated and becomes forever his body and blood. It will never be transformed back. It will still look like and taste like and feel like those elements. But there is something essentially different 
So I have to ask this question, what personal gain did Jesus have in the things he did? What, how did it benefit Jesus to do what he did? Did it, did it spare him the crucifixion? It doesn't look like it. Did it simplify his life? Not that I'm aware of. Did it make his teachings and journey, journeys uh, easier? Not at all. Jesus' gain was that we would know him, and we would know the Father, and we would know the Son, and we would know the Holy Spirit. Jesus' gain is that we would have life. Jesus' gain is for us. It's not for him. And so I go back to my thinking about myself, like speaking boldly, speaking outwardly, speaking bluntly even. What gain do I have in doing that? Do I get people to like me better? Probably not. Do I get people to, to, to show up more often? Maybe not. It's the same thing. It doesn't benefit anything for me when I'm speaking these truths, but it's, it's for the soul of that person. It's for their life. It's for eternity. And, and I, I say this often to people, like, I'm going to tell you something you may not want to hear, but it's not because I want you to like me. It's because I care about your soul. I did not become a priest for Jesus Christ to talk about some symbol. I did not lay down my life on the marble and give it over to the church to talk about some symbol. I did it because of a relationship that led me to believe in the Eucharist, which is his living body and blood. And I will die for that. I will fight for that. Because brothers and sisters, I love God. I want Jesus. I want to be in a relationship with him. I regret nothing in my life that has involved him. But I do want to be braver for him. And I want to be less afraid for him. And I want to be more outspoken and loving for him. So when we hear in this gospel today, this line, whoever eats this bread will live forever, this expression is only it only occurs three times in the entire Bible. It occurs twice right here at the very beginning of this gospel that we heard in the very end that we heard today. And then it happens one time in Genesis 3. And so there's this comparison that scholars will make about the tree of life that comes in Genesis and the bread of life, which Jesus speaks about here. And it's this tradition that calls the medicine of immortality. So all those things I mentioned earlier, all that sickness... God actually has the medicine to heal us. After this section, sorry, after this, this verse, it says, Many of his disciples who were listening said, This saying is hard. Who can accept it? They're talking about this idea of the Eucharist. This saying is hard. Who can accept it? And it goes on, a few verses after that, As a result of this, many of his disciples returned to their former way of life, and no longer accompanied him. They left him. They left him over this. They said, I, I can't get it. I, I, don't, I don't want it. So he turns to the 12, you know, his, his initial 12 guys. And he says, do you also want to leave? Now, thankfully, they said, no, we'll stay. But imagine this. This is the only instance in the Gospels where followers of Jesus abandon him in such large numbers. But even so, Jesus makes no effort 
to soften his words or clear up potential misunderstandings about his Eucharistic teaching. This is where Jesus lays it down. This is where he becomes unbending. And so he risks it, right? He, he risks the, because of the teaching of the Eucharist, he risks it and lets thousands walk away. And to those 12, he says, do you want to leave? He risks the entire salvation of the world on this because he would have still been crucified, yes. But who would have told the story? Who would have been informed about the fact that God died for us? Because that's what the apostles do. They go out after his crucifixion and they share it to the world. The only reason we know this is because the apostles. The only reason this exists is because of the apostles. Jesus did it, but if they weren't around to tell it, salvation would have ended. So Jesus risks everything based off of this. Now, what that says is, if you don't want the Eucharist, you don't want Jesus. And that sounds really harsh. Because what about all of our non-Catholic Christian friends? Does that mean that they don't want Jesus because they don't believe in the Eucharist, because they don't follow the same teachings? And I would say, not at all. I know so many people who are non-Catholic Christians who are just amazing people who love the Lord, who give their entire lives to their churches. And yet, I have not met, follow me on this one, I have not met a Christian who's not Catholic, who's heard this passage, who fully believes this passage, who has not become Catholic. I've also not met a Catholic who's left the church based off of a teaching on the Eucharist. And so I have two invitations today. One invitation is to our Christian brothers and sisters who are maybe exploring and discovering the faith and living out their faith well, but to really consider this. Would you be open to thinking about and prayerfully considering accepting the Eucharist as the truth that Jesus proclaims and therefore becoming Catholic? To receive him. That's the first invitation. The second invitation is for all of us who are Catholic. And it's an invitation, more, more so a, uh, a request. That when we come to seek the Eucharist in the Mass, that we do so always in a state of grace. Always having gone to confession, if we have a mortal sin on our soul, always desiring to allow him to enter into us in the most purest state, not, not downcasting the idea like, well, Jesus, like, no, like, this is where Jesus laid everything down, and therefore, I'm going to lay everything down for him in response. So the one invitation is for our brothers and sisters from other faith traditions to consider this as an opportunity to come home to the church. The other is an invitation for us as Catholics to remain as steadfast practicing Catholics and to seek out whatever needs to be done to get us back into those states of grace. If there is anything in the Mass today that you heard within the homily or other parts that um, invoked something, uh, created some tension or, or some conflict, um, my next uh, encouragement is to just come and talk to me about that. Let me know if I've if I said something that's offended you or something that's maybe stirred up some ideas and questions. I would 
be so happy to be open to those conversations. So know that that's always available. Summer's a great time. There's, there's a lot more flexibility. So just know that if that's, if that's something that's going on in your heart and your mind, um, that you have a place to come and, and have that conversation, to have that dialogue.